Thanks, Alison. My name is Rowan. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Auckland AV. And we've been working our way, uh, thinking through the topic of hell. Um, next week, we start on the second half of the series, looking at, at what heaven is. But really, it's a time for us to think through something that we so often um, hide or put away as a church. So why don't we pray together that as we come to God's word this morning, as we've heard it read, that we'd be reminded of the amazingness of our God and his great love. Let's pray. Father, this morning as um, we sit here hearing you speak, having heard your word just read to us, we ask that we would see the amazing effects of what you've done for us, that we'd recognize the amazingness of who Jesus is and what he's done, and that as we come together this morning, you might refresh us, you might point us to the absolute importance of seeing Jesus rightly, And you might send us out from here today with renewed vigour to speak of you and the love you've shown us in Jesus. Amen. A friend of mine uh, is a police officer uh, back in Sydney, and he tells of this time that he really doesn't love. He and his partner were were riding along because they were on their push bikes um, through through part of Sydney that kind of, it's it's, it's a fairly large area. They're riding through this um, back alleyway, and he was behind his partner. As, As they rode down this alleyway, he just saw something out of the corner of his eye, something that didn't look quite right, someone doing something with some boxes and kind of looking a bit shadowy. So he, he looped back and kind of whistled to his partner, went back around, and as he did, the guy had seen him go past. The guy stood up and was holding a packing knife in his hand, and as my friend rode around the corner, he was standing there with a knife in front of, his hand, in front of him. He was about 10 metres away, and the guy was walking straight towards him. He yelled, stop. The guy didn't stop. He kind of looked quite crazy. He was kind of coming toward him with this, this look in his eyes. My friend yelled, stop, again, as he pulled his hand onto his gun. He pulled out his gun. He raised it. He loaded it. As the guy came straight towards him, he's thinking, what am I going to do right now? He yelled again, for the last time, stop or I'll shoot. At that moment, his partner tackled the guy from behind. He'd looped back and actually had heard him, but otherwise he'd been away. And this friend of mine was there going, what would I have done? I didn't want to shoot him, but he was coming towards me. Here was my mate in a position of authority given by the government to to maintain justice in the world. He was the one with that given role. And there was a sense in which if you keep ignoring the warnings and taking it upon yourself to live any way you want, especially for this guy hidden behind the dumpster, that if you want to put yourself first at the expense of others, it's not going to end well for you. That day it may not have ended well for him if my mate's partner hadn't looped back around. A good authority, a right authority, a just authority will enforce justice and will stop those rebelling against society and and the world from carrying out their actions. The guy was charged, put in prison uh, for stealing the items he was going through um, behind this dumpster and for attacking the role and position of a police officer, for not stopping. Friends, that's exactly what God does with this world. Hell is right and just. It's the right and just stopping of our rebellion against God. The crimes that we've committed are far more offensive than an attempt to kill a police officer. We've committed mutiny. 
We've attempted to remove the one true and all-powerful God from his place and live life without him. We have far more to fear than a loaded pistol. But the reality of separation from God's goodness forever, the reality of judgment that we deserve. Last week, we saw that hell is real. We saw that it was right and it's horrifically painful. I'm not going to go over that stuff again. If you're keen to hear what we looked at and what the Bible's kind of saying around the issue of hell, I'd love you to jump online or go to iTunes and download the sermon there and have a listen. But although we shy away from this doctrine of hell, it's actually intended to be helpful for us. And today, what we're thinking through is, how is it helpful to us? How can we say in in any sense, hell is helpful? I want to say hell is designed to promote our growth and to push us to come to trust in the God who's amazingly loving. So I want to talk through five things actually six. I want to talk through six things that are really the implications of what hell means. Firstly, if there really is a hell, it helps us to express a right grief over sin, doesn't it? When you think about the the punishment and penalty that there are for those who've who've turned their back on God, surely our, our, our first response is a deep grief for those that we know who who haven't trusted in God, who haven't accepted the forgiveness. Surely there's a deep grief over what's gone on. Imagine for a moment there was a plague raging throughout Auckland and people were dying left, right and centre. There were, there were bodies all over the streets. What would you think of people who just skipped through the streets humming, going, I've got the solution, I'm fine. There's something quite not right about it, isn't there? There's something where you want to have deep concern for them. You want to at least be expressing grief of of what is going on. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 119. He says this, Tears stream down from my eyes because people do not keep your law. Hell and its reality pushes us to recognize the gravity of turning our backs on God should produce this underlying seriousness of what's going on and help us to take seriously the world that we're around. Number one, hell pushes us to a right grief over sin. Number two, hell gives us the motivation to stop sinning. A proper knowledge of hell means that we'll want to put to death sin in us. We looked at this verse last week, but Jesus' words are crystal clear. Have a look. Um, Matthew 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's, It's better to lose one of your members than to have your whole body thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better to lose one of your members than to have your whole body go into hell. When you realize the extent of what our actions deserve... It makes me take sin seriously, doesn't it? We often trivialize sin so much. You know, we call ice creams after the seven deadly sins. We kind of giggle behind the school shed like little girls going, oh, sin's so bad. Like, it's just the way that society thinks. But Jesus takes it far more seriously, doesn't he? Hell reminds me to stop sinning. Jesus is saying here in this passage that 
dealing radically with, with personal sin is the only alternative to everlasting condemnation. Amputate your sin. That's what he's saying. Cut it off. Pluck it out. Throw it away. If you don't, well, we find ourselves looking down the barrel of hell. Now, as I say that, there's, there's part of me um, that kind of goes, but I thought we're saved not by works, Rowan, but, but by faith in Jesus. I thought it was by trusting in him that we're saved. How does that match? You know, are you saying that if I sin, I'm going to hell? Well, actually, they match perfectly. <laughs> See, we are only saved by trusting in what Jesus has done, that he's paid the penalty for us turning our backs on God for the mutiny we've created. He's gone and absorbed that wrath of God that we rightly deserve. And by us trusting in him, saying, I, I, can't, I, I can't save myself, I need to put my life in your hands, we're trusting in what Jesus has done. And if we trust what he's done, then we'll see the incredible seriousness of our rebellion against God. We'll see what he had to face for us. We'll see the incomparable sacrifice Jesus had to go to buy us out of our actions. If you trust Jesus, if you really go, yes, my life is in his hands, then there's no way you want to continue in rebellion against God, is there? Of course not. I don't want to keep rebelling against him. It should grieve us when we sin. It's kind of like this. Imagine we're kind of walking along a tightrope. Now, I don't know about you. You might be a brilliant tightrope walker. I'm not. Never really done it. Pretty much scares me. But imagine there's a tightrope and it's going across a volcano. And none of us can kind of do it on our own. Let's, let's just up it. Let's say there's Vaseline all over the tightrope just to kind of make it a little more slippery. It's going across, not Mount Eden volcano, but active volcano. And so there's a little warmth underneath it. We're there, and this is what it's like. This is the reality. We actually deserve to be thrown into the volcano for the way we've responded to God. But Jesus says, I'm the only one that can do this. He's walked across, and he walks across in front of us. He says, just trust me. Hold on to me. Tie yourself to me, and I'll carry you across this tightrope. I've faced the, the death of hell for you so that you could be saved. Well, man, I'm going to be clinging like nothing else, aren't you? Imagine the stupidity for a moment if we went, oh, this is fun, and we started jumping. Started jumping on the top, going, oh, I don't think it's that bad. Jesus is fine. I don't need to keep trusting him. I'm going to try and walk for a while. Like, it's crazy. If you really trust Jesus that he's the one who saved us, we're going to follow him. We're going to take sin seriously, not jumping around on the tightrope of life. We're going to say hell is real and we need to trust him for the fall is awful. A mate of mine um, that I've, I've known for a while has, has struggled fairly seriously with a porn addiction most of his life. I remember the night at our Bible study group where we split into guys and girls and um, we were just chatting through as guys, you know, how, how we're going and how we're going and putting Jesus first. Um, and I remember him sharing how much he was struggling with looking at pornography online. Now, it's not surprising. Pretty much every guy I meet has at some point in their life struggled with pornography and a lot of women too. I want to say there's a lot of, of people that are struggling with this issue. In fact, I've seen recently this secular media has been saying this is a real issue. We've got to stop people looking at, at porn so much. It's really affecting relationships. It's, it, it's a big issue. 
So I told this guy the line that someone so helpfully told me when I was 15 or 16. I was, I was at a conference uh, and the speaker said this great line about how, um, how he struggled with sin and how he dealt with it. He said, sin, especially sexual sin, is like a tiger. If you go into a cage with a tiger, you're not going to come out very, very pretty. Like a tiger will devour you. A tiger is a huge animal. No one walks into a cage empty-handed and expects to come out on top of a, of a tiger. Sin is like that tiger. He said, but, but if you don't feed the tiger, if you starve that tiger for, for weeks, for months, it kind of shrinks and shrinks into like a pathetic little kitten. He said, where sin is involved, especially sexual sin, starve the tiger. Starve the tiger. Those words for me have been so helpful. Every time temptation comes in all sorts of areas to think, starve it. Don't feed it. Don't give it a big fat steak and make it grow so it will devour me. You're not going to win, Rowan. Starve the tiger. So I I told this friend um, that story um, and he was kind of like, yeah, I've tried that. I've also set up accountability stuff, which is something I've got set up as well. A mate and I email each other um, every fortnight and ask how we've been going in all, in all sorts of areas, um, sexually, uh, with greed, uh, with alcohol. Th- those three are generally three things that, um, that pastors struggle with, that churches get pulled down by. So we ask each other uh, every fortnight, hey, how are you doing in those areas? I chatted about accountability with this mate, but he was like, look, I tried that as well. I even installed software on my computer that emailed a report of everything that I'd ever looked at to two accountability partners. He said, in the end, I just, I, I couldn't do it. I didn't care. I, I just kept looking at, at porn. He said, in the end, for me, I just had to cut off the internet. And when he said that, all the guys in the group just went, what? Like, sorry, you, you cut off the internet? He's like, yeah, no smartphone, no internet. There's an internet connection at work. It's an open computer that I use there. But I just realized that I cannot have an internet connection. Now, there's someone that understands the reality of hell, the reality of putting Jesus first. So often we're like, oh, don't be so extreme. Don't go to such lengths. But he was very, very clear. I can't have it. I just cut it off. He understood Jesus' word perfectly. Our doctrine of hell helps us recognize the seriousness of sin. And it makes me think, how seriously do I take sin? Pornography, lying, apathy, drunkenness, selfishness, not treating God as he really is, creating mutiny, putting myself at the center. Jesus' word to us, pointing to the reality of hell, says, cut it out, chop it off. And I want to say, if God's convicting you today, if your conscience has been pricked by some of these issues, don't be like, oh, I'm the worst sinner ever. We're all sinners. (laughs) We all deserve death and judgment and hell, every single one of us. We all struggle in different areas. Just talk to someone. Come and chat with me about it. There's no shame in going, oh, I'm a sinner. We all know it. The only one we're fooling is ourselves. So come and and chat to someone, a mate or someone you know well, and say, look, can you just pray for me? Can you ask me how I'm going here? Or just talk about the way to go forward. Whatever you do, don't let Satan win by saying you must remain silent 
and you sit there and you, you don't tell anyone because like if I tell anyone, oh, I can't go to church anymore, I can't talk about it. And most importantly, talk about it to God. Confess your sin to God for he is ready to forgive. Jesus has paid the price. How amazing is this one whom we trust, hey? Well, the third area that I want to kind of point to that our doctrine of hell helps us think through is is a short one, but it's to do with contentment. Our doctrine of hell gives us this deep-seated sense of contentment. No matter how horrible our circumstances are, no matter how disappointed we are in life or in ourselves, we can be content that hell, though deserved, is not our future. If you trust in Jesus, that's not the future for you. We've been rescued from this, and so it enables us to to have a sense of contentment in that. Have a look at Psalm 86. The psalmist says this in Psalm 86, verse 12. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks with my whole heart. I will honor your name continually, for you will extend your great and loyal love to me. And will deliver my life from the depths of Sheol. When we recognize what we've been freed from, it does put our struggles and the trials of life into perspective. Not to minimize the struggles we're going through by any stretch. No, it's, it's hard. Life is hard. But eternity is at stake. And because of Jesus, it's secure. It allows us to be content. For it gives us an appreciation of Jesus. I was standing here last week as I was explaining the reality of hell and how, um, how bad hell is. And thinking through that if hell is that bad, it's that bad because that's what I deserve. That I actually kind of, it hit me. That I deserve hell. It hit me how bad my rebellion against God is. And made me realize how thankful I am. That Jesus has paid it all. It's all done, finished. The reality of hell makes me love Jesus more and more and more. How much I have been forgiven for. What an incredible cost it was to save me. We've tried to imagine over the last two weeks in, in a limited way the, what hell would be like. But Jesus didn't have to. He experienced hell on the cross. Not not the scorn, not the nails, not the whipping, not even the death, but what happened in that. That the wrath of God, the anger of God, the right judgment of God was poured out on him. He experienced separation from his father whom he had known for eternity. All God's goodness taken out. He experienced for us. He drank to the dregs of the cup God's anger. Isaiah 53.6 so helpfully describes what's going on at the cross, although the cross hadn't come yet when Isaiah wrote these words. By talking of Jesus, Isaiah says, but the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. The Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. 
Jesus willingly accepted hell for me. And eternity in hell wouldn't begin to exhaust God's anger. Sometimes I think, you know, if Jesus just faced hell on the cross and it was only three days, then did he really experience what he should have? Like, didn't Jesus get off lightly? I don't know if you've ever had that kind of thought. Isn't, isn't, isn't it kind of, if, if, if the right penalty for sin is for us to spend an eternity in hell, why could Jesus do it on the cross? Well, it actually is a great question to ask because it expands our view of Jesus. An eternity in hell of just one man wouldn't be enough to exhaust God's anger. But the death of Jesus was sufficient to fully deal with our sin and for all the sins of all the people on the face of the planet. Do you see how much greater Jesus' death was? How much greater what he took on was? Not that, oh, he got off lightly, but, whoa, this is enough to absorb everything everyone had ever done, said, or thought for, for eternity on him. This is such a significant event that in, in, in that moment, God's wrath is satisfied. The fact that Jesus' death was sufficient for all means it was an even greater travesty for the Son of God to face the wrath of his Father than for each person who ever lived to spend an eternity in hell. The nature of hell doesn't minimize what Jesus suffered for you and I. It shows the utter unimaginability of what he went through for us even a word it shows how amazing he is far worse was it that the son of god would die on a cross and and face god's anger towards us it was far worse that that would happen than an infinite number of eternities in hell it makes me go how infinitely worthy jesus must be i think i undersell him all the time i don't get The amazingness of this one who created all things, who through whom and by whom and for whom all things exist and have their being would die for me. Even though I understand that, I I minimize it because I think that maybe (laughs) Jesus got off lightly. No, no. For his blood and only his blood is able to cleanse us. It's no wonder that Paul says in Galatians 6, but may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is where he is amazed. That is where his focus is. That is what he is on about. It's Jesus has done this. Do you get the amazingness of Jesus? He, hell brings us to our knees and moves us toward wonder and, and gratitude and thankfulness. Hell inspires us with this deep-seated love and passion for him who loved us and gave himself up for us and took hell for us that he would do this so amazing is jesus that his death exhausted hell for you and me that's what he's worth that's who he is hell makes me reframe jesus and see him in even greater light with even greater worth When you believe in Jesus, you are linked with, you are united to and called co-heirs with a being of unimaginable power 
and of glory and of life. That's who we're tied to. That's who has died for us and calls us brothers and sisters. What a privilege we have. Trusting in Jesus is, is no small thing. And hell and its satisfaction by him only makes him greater. Do you see that? Well, fifthly, a right view of hell helps us have a right view of the need to share the the news of Jesus with the world around us. It gives us a, a passion, a zeal for evangelism. How I long to see the world around us trusting Jesus. Don't you? This is the great wonder we have of actually proclaiming him, his, his availability to all, to our family, to our friends, to our workmates. Jesus, this all-powerful one, so amazing, so worthy that he can extinguish the wrath of God in but a moment on a cross, chooses to make that message known through us, through you and me. He chooses to make the news known that he has paid the price of everything that he's done, of the great sacrifice he has made. He chooses us to share that with the world around us. What a privilege it is to be caught up in what he's doing. What an honor. We've been entrusted with the words that free every person we meet from hell. We've got them, you and me. The only reason I'm not scared out of my wits right now is that a man by the name of Noel Pilcher explained who Jesus was to my mum and dad. They went to get me baptised at three months old and he went, what are these promises you're making? And he did a course like our explaining Christianity and my parents went through it and actually we think Jesus is the real deal. And so because of him opening his mouth and explaining the realities of who Jesus is, my parents trusted in Jesus. And then through my parents' word to me, I grew up trusting in who he was. And through key people in my life, they kept pointing me to the truth and giving answers from God's word. I am so thankful. As I was reflecting on this this week, I decided I'd sit down and start writing a letter. Uh, So I've started drafting a letter to Noel Pilcher, thanking him for what he had saved me from through proclaiming this news of Jesus. I've started writing a letter to my mum and dad, thanking them for the reality of of what they've done in in sharing with me who Jesus was and to a number of people that have been instrumental throughout my life. Why? Because I must know. Because I want to encourage them about the amazingness that it is to speak of the news of Jesus. And I want to thank them for taking the chance to open their mouth all it would have taken is for one of them to just stay shut and i'd be looking down the barrel of hell who who are those people for you they're there aren't they or maybe you're here and you haven't yet trusted in jesus but you're having these friends talk to you about who he is and what he's done they're not just trying to sign you up for some financial gain they love you They really believe this stuff. And if they didn't say it to you, then they wouldn't be caring for you. They're saying it because they care deeply. So just humor them for a bit. Have a look at what they're saying. Take seriously the claims 
Don't, don't write it off as like, oh, I'd like to think it's different. But actually see, is Jesus really who the Bible claims he is? Is he really this amazing one who, who made us and sustains us? We have so much to thank God for. And our thankfulness that comes about because of hell drives me to do the same for others. To share the message of Jesus with those around us. It's not going to happen straight away. So often I think, yes, I pray, God, please give me an opportunity. You know, I jump in a taxi and I think, God, I pray, pray, please give me an opportunity. And somewhere in my head, I think maybe the taxi driver will be converted in the next 10 minutes. You know, yeah, it's possible. God could do that. It's possible. And I often try and have conversations with people I bump into. But I don't think I'm very good at the persistent relationship. Remembering that it takes time. It'll take hours of prayer, years of opportunity, years of welcoming people into our homes, of barbecuing with friends, of not knowing who God will bring to himself, but, but speaking the truth in love to all that we can, won't it? But I can't imagine in 40 billion years time from now, ever looking back and saying, oh, I'm so glad I didn't take that opportunity. Now, in 40 billion years' time from now, I'm going to be saying, I'm thankful for the ones, Lord, you enabled me to take. The joy, the satisfaction in knowing I did what I could, praying regularly, taking as many opportunities as I can to see every one of my friends and my family and my neighbors and my colleagues hear this life-giving news that Jesus has rescued them from hell. To not take these opportunities means one of two things. One, we don't love people. Two, we don't believe in hell. Now, I'm not trying to guilt us all into trying to share this news with others, but I am saying how important it is. God will use our feeble words, but he can't use us if we don't open our mouths. We don't just bring up things in, you know, in just a little bit different ways. I'm scared. I'm scared talking to people, especially people I know, like neighbours. I don't want to come across as desperate, like, like they're seeing me. And just, I just want to get them into my church to build some empire. <laughs> but I do want them to know Jesus. So pray. Ask God to give you the words to say and, and just start talking. Ask people questions. And do you ever worry about life? Um, have you ever wondered if this is it? When, when things go wrong in their lives or in your life, you go, damn, it makes me think I'm glad this isn't all there is to be. Well, it's different. What do you mean this isn't all there is? Uh, honest questions. Not lines you're trying to play on people. But honest questions to point them to the truth of who Jesus is. I read uh, in the paper a few years ago of um, really a horrific thing that happened in, in a shop in, in the States. Uh, it was an Apple store. I'm like, I like a little bit, little bit of Apple product, so I was kind of hearing about this. But guys and t- two people were shutting up shop in the Apple store. Uh, it was about 10 o'clock at night, and they kind of heard this screaming from the shop next door. And they're like, oh. So one of them called the other one over, and they're standing at the wall, and they're hearing. And they heard the words, God help me. Okay. And then they heard this thud noise. And anyway, they went home that night to find out the next day that uh, two shop attendants in the shop next door, um, one was killing the other one. 
they were witnessing really a, a murder happening uh, and they did nothing about it. It's, it's a psychological effect called the bystander effect. If you want to look it up in psychology textbooks, it's where basically where, where two or three people see something going on, especially when they're in a large group, but they don't think it's their responsibility to step in and, and stop it. And so they just let things go on. And they did a study where um, they had people come into the room one at a time and they played them five sections of a tape. Um, that the people thought they were um, counselling a, a university student. It was really a tape playing. And what happened was when, the, when, when they went in, uh, the tape played and in the first bit, the person was saying, oh, look, I'm a bit worried about my studies. I've just been diagnosed with epilepsy. And, and then, they, then it was back to the person. They had one chance to counsel them. And so they'd say something and then the tape would play again. And during the second part of the tape, the person that they didn't know was a tape, they thought it was a real person, it would then go, oh, I'm starting to have a fit. And they'd start to make noise. And it kind of would get louder and louder and louder. Only 31% of people in this study left the room and went to get help. Why? Because we think it's not, it's not up to us. Now, when that person was alone in the room, it went up a lot higher. When there's only one person, we think, oh, it's only my responsibility. But once there's someone else around, we don't do that. And I've seen this repeated and repeated and repeated. I've seen and heard stories of, of things going on and, and people being around and not doing anything about it to stop it. The research says you should call someone by name. If you're in a situation where something's going wrong, you say, if you can hear me, you need to respond. It's on you. But here's the thing that I feel so challenged by. Every day I walk past and watch hundreds of people who are living their lives straight down the barrel of hell and I don't say anything. I don't speak. I'm too scared to speak, even the ones that I know. I think we should feel uncomfortable. I think hell gives us this uncomfortable feeling to say we need to share this with others hell is one of the great motivators that that kickstarts me to swallow my pride to open my mouth and to do whatever i can to prepare to speak about the amazingness of what jesus has done well the last point that hell promotes us forward to do is to accept god's purposes to accept that he's in control. While it's our duty to share the truth, to love people, to pray for them, ultimately we've got to remember that if people go to hell, they have no one to blame but themselves. Have a look at Ezekiel 18. The person who sins is the one who will die. A son will not suffer for his father's iniquity and a father will not suffer for his son's iniquity. The righteous person will be judged according to his righteousness and the wicked person according to his wickedness. We stand or fall based on our response to who God is. If we fail to tell our friends about Jesus, which I have, the last time I was sitting with my grandma who does not trust in Jesus, all I had the courage to say is, can I pray for you? What's going on with me? If we fail to tell our friends about Jesus, we will be held partly accountable. But the final responsibility rests with the individual concern. We can't accept more responsibility than God has given to us. If we do, it will break us. 
He has not rested everyone's eternity on our shoulders. He said, yes, please speak, share the news of Jesus, but it doesn't depend on me for every single person. Don't, don't view, the word never points us that way. Yes, pray for people, pray for opportunities, for words to say. But it doesn't ultimately rest on us. If we survey the, the Bible's account of hell, we might hear many people and even ourselves say, look, I prefer there was no such place. I get it. It's totally understandable. But the problem is, it's just not the view of Scripture. God's Word shows that those gathered around the throne in glory on the final day will be praising God for His judgment on sin. They'll be worshipping Him for overthrowing wickedness. Have a look at Revelation 11 and 16. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, because you have taken your great power and reigned. You are righteous, O Lord, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Seems to me like the saints in heaven praise God for hell. Now, while I'm thankful that there is a hell for sin, well, I'm thankful there is a place prepared for Satan and his angels where he'll be locked away for eternity. I can't praise God for hell. I can't. Not now. I look at my own desires and motivations and I see too much sin in me, too much self-focus and pride. I, I can't call anyone else out. How hypocritical I deserve to be there. It's only because of Jesus' phenomenal work on the cross that I'm not in hell, that, I, that is not my future. There's no way I can look someone who's rebelling against God in the eye and thank God for his punishment of them. I, I... But when we're in heaven, we will praise God for all that he has done. That includes what he's accomplished with hell. Then we'll be rid of sin. Our motives will be holy and pure, not mixed up, but right. We will be filled with the mind of Christ. God's just and right judgment will be revealed and we'll stand back and say, yes, that is right. When all the iniquities of life will be swept away, all the apparent unfairness and mysteries of time will be solved. We'll stand there and see everything made right Jesus' glory be fully seen for who he is. We'll be amazed. And those who've set themselves against God will be humbled and cast down. God will be glorified in hell. That's what the Bible writers say. And if the glory of God means more to us than anything else, we won't be sorry that hell exists. We'll be transformed able to worship God for all that he is and all that he's done. That includes hell. But now, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to see more and more people get to know Jesus. I'm going to pray for opportunities that my mouth would be open and the words might be there, that on the last day they might see him and glorify him forever. Friends, hell is there to grow us, 
to help us to see the amazingness of Jesus and to propel us out into loving this world. Why don't we pray that God would do that in us as we think through this this morning. Lord God, we want to thank you so much for the strong word to us about hell that you have throughout your scriptures. Lord, like you, we we do not delight in the death of any sinner. And we confess that we deserve hell as much as anyone else in this world. Lord, please help us to take the reality of hell and to propel us into amazing wonder at what you've done, to be able to see the great mercy that you've offered us, that not only are you just and right and keep your judgments, but you provide the solution for our own rebellion. Father, we are sorry for the times we turn our back on you. We ask you would help us to say no to sin. And we pray that you would take this reality of your love and your justice to propel us out to speak, to not be bystanders, but to speak to those we know and love. We pray for opportunities, for words, that they might see who you are and trust you. Amen.